My song is tied to my Savior, right? That's where I think about me. I think in terms of my Savior. We are saying about finding everything I have is found not in me, but is found in you, Lord Jesus. And then to also think about the beautiful truth that it's in Him, in Christ, that we experience His goodness, His love. And for the Christian to be able to, to anchor our identity this morning, especially in the goodness of our God, uh, I'm so thankful for our worship team and helping us as we especially begin our series even this morning as we prepare our hearts to receive God's Word and worship Him in that way to think about everything that we find in, in Christ. And that's going to be uh, our topic today as we think about the topic of identity. Well, would you agree with me that the language of identity uh, the significance of identity has taken a more prominent place, I think, in cultural discussions in our time. If you go back and read in other periods, I love to study church history, you don't hear a lot of language of people saying, I identify, I identify, I identify. That phrase is not very common. And yet in our culture today, we hear it all the time, meaning we want to prove ourselves to be somebody, to, to build a name for ourselves to have others identify and to recognize what we think is significant. And so if I were to say, I am fill in the blank, what would you put there? How we identify often explains what we think is significant and what we want others to recognize as significant. And so what you say after the I am blank says something. It reveals information about you that you believe for this other person you think matters, that you want them to see. So, for example, we we can build our identity based on our work. I am a CEO. I am a project manager. We can build our identity on relationships with people. I am the husband of Tirza Burke. Or, Or, you know, Pastor Nitschke, he's my friend. to to think about the significance of people. We can seek to build our identity based on our sexual desires. We can build our identity and think what is most significant uh, that others should know about us is our suffering. I am a cancer patient. It, It could be also related to our sin. I am a drunkard. The point is identity is significant. The desire for building an identity, a legacy that, that means something, drives much of what we do, what we live for. And that identity we seek to build on our own, though, doesn't last. It doesn't last. Like the, the greatest showman, we can say, I am brave, I am bruised, look out, here I come. Uh, I'm marching to the beat of my drum. But if I'm doing that, God says, that type of identity won't last. See, whatever identity I seek to build in my life, as I think about even in my own life at times, whether it was a great athlete, that identity started to shake when I came to see better athletes than me. Or or when I think of, uh, I was a great student, and then as you start applying for those colleges, you start to realize, I'm not the best student, and your identity starts to to shake. Or or you begin to to think about, uh, well, being well-liked by others. And then you may leave friends and family and relationships that you had built for years that you were well-liked in and come to a place where it seems like nobody really likes you particularly, right? And again, your identity can begin to shake in those moments. 
It's like one pop star Madonna said, I have an iron will. All my will has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I think we can relate to that. We, of all people, know our inadequacies. We see our weaknesses in ways that nobody else does. And then she goes on to say, I push past one spell of it. I discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. I think we've all been there. You reach a plateau and then you realize you meet somebody who's even better. And then you think, I'm pretty mediocre. And then she says, I push past this. And she says, again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. And my struggle has never ended and it probably never will. I think Madonna's words capture the reality of the human experience as we think about the identities that we seek to build. As much as we strive, even when we reach and obtain some level of satisfaction and think, I'm pretty significant, God then leads us to a next moment where we start to see, I'm really actually still not that significant. And the identity that you build and your sense of who you are being built over time, seeking to be somebody, eventually starts to crumble. And so what happens when that identity that you're building in life has been confronted as you think about your life? How did it lead you to be discouraged? How did it lead you to push yourself further again on the performance treadmill? Michael Phelps, one of the greatest Olympian swimmers, said, who was I outside of the swimming pool? And so when his swimming career came to an end, the question of identity came up. Who am I apart from swimming? When swimming is no longer possible and my performance in the pool no longer is as impressive as it once was, See, we strive to prove ourselves to be somebody hoping that the significance of the identity that we build will not crumble. And But then the who we are, what can be built that cannot crumble eventually? See, it's not an identity that we have built. It's actually what we were singing about this morning. It's an identity that's found in what the Creator, the God of heaven and earth, has made, that He has built, that He will make sure doesn't change by His power And that's one built on the work of Jesus Christ, the Lord, the one who unifies the universe and who accomplishes all that he says. And it's with those thoughts in mind, I want you to turn to two places in Scripture this morning as we think about our identity. First is Acts chapter 19. So you want to turn your Bible to Acts chapter 19. That's on page 108. Page 108, Acts chapter 19. And then also to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. So Acts 19 is on page 108. Ephesians chapter 1 is on page 150 in the back section of the Bible in the chair in front of you. Both are in the New Testament, so the back part of the Bible. So page 108, Acts chapter 19, and Ephesians 1. So you're going to have to have both of those ready to flip back here. Okay, and so today we're launching our, our new series on building upon our heritage. And this is in light of our church celebrating our 60th year anniversary of Faith Church, as Pastor Byers mentioned last week. And we're studying the book of Ephesians because it's all about the church. It's all about the work that Jesus is building and the legacy that he is doing through his church. Uh, One commentator says this, Ephesians focuses on the basic doctrine of the church, what it is and how believers function within it. And so our heritage, our identity, and building upon of that must be focused then on God's plan. It must be focused on the church because not even the gates of hell can prevail against what Jesus is building in his people. 
And so I want to start with a bit of background then as we begin our series on the book of Ephesians to talk a little bit about the city of Ephesus. Uh, the city of Ephesus, it made a name for itself. It was a huge city. Its significance was known throughout the world. When you think of important cities, significant cities in our modern age, you, you would want to visit. Ephesus would be that type of place. It was a, a center of culture, a center of finances, a center of the arts. It was a center of entertainment. And, and you think, that's like Lafayette, Indiana, Right? No, it's more like a New York City or, or like a, a Los Angeles. You know, I remember a conversation an international student had from Beijing when he came here and he says, I really love your little small village. <laughs> the, the point being is Ephesus was not Lafayette. It was even greater. It, again, when you think of a, a majestic city that had a name, Ephesus was all of that, plus being a center of athletics, a center of learning and, and religion. As for its importance in the Roman Empire at the time, Ephesus, some scholars suggest, was second only to Rome in its prominence. Caesar Augustus had made Ephesus the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire for a season. It was located on the west coast, to think of modern Turkey. It was a perfect bridge between both Western Roman Empire and Eastern cultures. And the Apostle Paul goes there to this significant city, not to make a name for himself, but to talk about the name of Jesus and to share about Jesus' identity and, and why Jesus and his kingdom is good news. And so I want you to see sort of the beginning of the gathering of the church in Ephesus as it begins to grow and how Jesus builds his church there, starting in Acts chapter 19. I'm not going to read. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit just for sake of time today, but Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples that were there. Now jump to verse 7. There were in all about 12 men. So this is beginning of where we see how many there were to start. Verse 8, and he entered the synagogue, and so Paul would typically, he was Jewish, and he would often start with the Jews who had some knowledge of the God in the Old Testament and the Scriptures. And so he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about what? The kingdom of God. See, this is what he's concerned about that's not shaking. And, and, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, the way is the followers of Jesus Christ in the early days before they were called Christians, uh, before the people, he withdrew from them. And he took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. See, Paul withdrew from the Jews, and then he went to the non-Jewish Gentiles. And you'll notice that it's a learning center, right? And this took place for, verse 10, two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How is that possible? That so many throughout Asia, which would be present-day Turkey, would hear. Because, again, Ephesus was a cultural and city center where things would spread. People would come, and they would leave. Verse 18, Many also, all those who had believed, kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their, their practices. So there's these Jewish people who have been trying to use their magic books and exercising bad spirits, and they're starting to see they're not that powerful compared to this Jesus that Paul is proclaiming. And so now they're bringing their books back, and they're having them burned. So he says they, they're disclosing their practices. Many of those who practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. 
And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now jump to verse 23. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, so here we have uh, some identity about this man. And notice what happens as the gospel, as the good news of Jesus begins to advance in the city. How does that shake this man's identity? his stability in life. This man Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, which is a a false god of the the Greek religion, the god of sort of the fertility and the hunt. He was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of silver similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business, making silver false gods for the temple. Right? So his livelihood is threatened because people are sort of giving up their religious practices of their old ways. These he gathered the people with the workmen. He said this. And so verse 26, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that the gods made with hands are no gods at all. Let me just say, if you have to make your God with your hands... Your God is not a God. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of this great goddess Artemis was regarded as worthless. And that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. See, Ephesus was known to be, actually had the temple of Artemis, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. An ancient Greek poet, Antipater of Sidon, said this, I've seen my eyes on the walls of the lofty Babylon. I've seen the statue of Zeus, the hanging gardens, the colossus of the sun, the high pyramids. But when I saw the house of Artemis, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. Just to get an idea of how amazing this temple in Ephesus that had been built. And Paul goes there, and now this temple in Artemis is being dethroned by a greater king. Talk about a significant place. Ephesus was a big deal. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Look who they want to identify with. What do they think is significant and most important? Artemis. The city then was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one another at one accord into the theater. And so the Paul, you can imagine, the the mob is now rushing Paul and bringing him into the big theater where all the people would gather. Again, his identity, you can see they're being wrapped up. Their livelihood is being dethroned. And right now, this is how they're responding. Verse 35, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, What man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple and of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven? So since there are undeniable, these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. Verse 38, so then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. Verse 41, after saying these things, he dismissed the uh, assembly. So obviously, the, the, the start of the church in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul, there was a lot of controversy in what was happening in this rather significant city. 
And it's within that background, that's how Paul has a relationship with this group of Christians, because he was part of the founding of the church that was starting in Ephesus, and the advance of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in this area. And what's amazing is we can actually see uh, ruins today in Ephesus. You could actually visit some of the ruins of the city that are still today. And by amazing software, if you love Google Earth, we can actually recreate what we think the, the city of Ephesus looked like. Just to get an idea of how significant of a city this is. I love Google Earth. I love technology. This is pretty incredible stuff right here. But again, just so you can see, we're talking about Turkey. So again, the Ephesus sits on the coast of Turkey. It's a port city. So again, huge trade would come through this area. You can imagine, again, both the Roman world and trade, and then also the Eastern cultures and trade, wanting to trade with the Roman world, would come there. And so often, again, as you would travel, you can imagine the, it was known for these incredible buildings. In the book of Ephesians, the building metaphor is going to become prominent to describe what Jesus is doing with his church. So you would embark out of the city and there would be this main roadway through the whole city that would lead you right into the theater. And that's actually the, the theater would, is estimated to have held about 25,000 people. And so again, you saw in Acts 19, this is where Paul is rushed into the theater before all of the people and the mob in the city as they're concerned about the image that he is spreading. And so to give you an idea of the size of the population at this time, usually the theaters were about 10%. There we have Rossade Stadium. No, but seriously, you see the, again, that's the Hippodrome where they'd often race horses and chariots, but entertainment was a huge part of their culture and their identity. On the far side of the city is the recreation of what they think the, the, the temple of Artemis looked like. So not only was it a center for finances, but also for religion and culture and arts. And so this was one of the seven wonders of the world. And, and so again, Ephesian, uh, this, the Ephesian people were a well-known people, a fluent city. And, and this is where Paul, again, is advancing the good news of Jesus Christ. And he's proclaiming a different kingdom, a different kingdom that will last even longer than Ephesus. Ephesus is in ruins today. And so with that in mind, I want you now to turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Book of Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm just going to begin with the first two verses as we begin to start our series today. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. See, Paul's two-verse introduction has significant identity statements as he begins to encourage the church. These two verses reveal God's plan for this age. See, God has one master plan in this age that he is building. He's not constructing a theater primarily or an educational system or even a great city like New York City where you can make a name for yourself. But he's calling and he's setting apart a people in this age from every nation for his purposes. And this is through the good news of Jesus Christ. That through the forgiveness of sins that comes by faith in Jesus, you can be united into God's family, into the church and all things, summing up all things under Christ. And the church that planted at Ephesus represents an outworking of this huge plan of God including the nations under Christ by faith. And so the verses 1 through 2 begin to explain as the good news about Jesus Christ advances, Paul can write to both Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, about the church. 
And he starts the letter focusing on who they are, their identity, and the spiritual blessings that they receive in Christ, their union with him. Probably more than any other of Paul's epistles, Ephesians begins with tons of identity statements, exhortations to Christians about who are you in Christ? How should you think about yourself? Such a tightly packed reminder of all the spiritual blessings that we have by faith in Jesus. And so from the city of Ephesus, we know that the knowledge of the one true God was beginning to spread throughout all of Asia. The temple of Artemis, where everybody liked to make a name and identity for themselves, is starting to be dethroned. And Paul wants to remind the Christians, where is the lasting identity that is to be found that will not be crushed? And so by the second and third century, all of Asia Minor, though, was primarily affirming Christian belief. And so to think again about the the spread of Christianity in this place, today there are no longer any Ephesus remaining, but the church of Jesus Christ is still being built by God. And so today we launch our series again, Building on Heritage, and this morning we're starting our series, Remembering Your Identity as One in Christ, and especially the aspect that you are saints. You are saints. See, Paul's introduction to the church at Ephesus reminds us of three unchangeable parts of God's plan upon which to build your lasting and your stable identity. The first is there's one authority, authoritative foundation upon which to build. So this is what provides us lasting legacy, lasting identity. If I attempt to build my life on anything else, it won't last. I must be building on an authoritative foundation that God promises to keep. So what foundation, for example, is I attempting to build my life on through college? Could be academic credentials. What was Madonna building her life on? Provocative performances. What foundation was Michael Phelps building his life on when he has this identity crisis, swimming? And Paul is indicating here in his brief introduction the authoritative foundation on which any believer in Christ must build their life and their identity. Two statements that show, again, authoritative foundation. First, he says of who he is, that he is an apostle. He is a sent one. See, God sent human messengers like Paul to give an authoritative message that they can trust, that they can believe, that this is a word that's reliable from God that you can bank your hope on and build your life upon and your identity on. See, God had showed especially appointed messengers, the apostles, who are witnesses of Christ and his resurrection, And he gave them the role then of beginning to carry the testimony, the word of God to the nations. See, Jesus Christ selected men who had witnessed all that he had did and said. And Jesus, after he was finished with his work, sent those men out. We read in like passages like Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. See, the apostles were not quite the same though as you and me today in some regards. At Faith Church, we believe again that after the death of the original apostles, we don't have the, the same office of apostles to, uh, again, that exists today in the church. They had a specific role in a specific time in a specific place And they accomplished what was finished there, so there's no more apostles today. And we see passages over and over in the New Testament that emphasize their unique authority that Jesus granted them. For example, 2 Corinthians 10.8, For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, church, 
or, or 2 Corinthians 13.10. For this reason, I'm writing these things in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me, Paul, one of the apostles, for building up and for not tearing down. Or 1 Thessalonians 2.5. For we have never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor did we see glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Or 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of true apostles were performed among you with all perseverance. What authority were they granted as true apostles? Signs, wonders, and miracles that Jesus had shown to authenticate that they were his messengers. And so Paul had a unique authority. And so when he is writing to the Ephesian church and saying he's an apostle, he's saying everything I'm about to write in this letter is authoritative for you. Meaning this is what you must believe. This is God's very word to you, church. And this is where you have to ground the truth of your life upon if you're going to be building and, and growing in Christ. And the sent ones, including Paul, were chosen by the will of God. By the will of God. See, this is a work that is done by the authoritative will of God. There is no other work of God that has authority and foundation behind it than what God has spoken and done through what He has revealed in His Word. This is what's lasting. This is what is stable. This is what we are to trust in and believe. It's our foundation for life. See, superseding, building your resume or your career or your family, your name, all that is secondary to what God is doing and what He is promising to build by His Word. Later in Ephesians, we're going to study this verse, but notice the identity statement for the believers. Who you are statements. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, holy ones. And that's the, the part how he addresses the church in the beginning of his letter as he greets them. Saints, holy ones, and are of God's household, having been built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so let's get really practical here. What is the foundation that is laid by the prophets and apostles? He's using this imagery. He's talking again about the Word. The Word that God by His authority has given to them to proclaim the testimony about God that's written in your Bible. And so the foundation that is laid by the prophets and apostles, what is he referring to? Is this. This is what's reliable. This is what's authoritative for your life. And this is a testimony about Jesus Christ and why your hope needs to be in Him. And so the apostles and the prophets recorded the very words of God and they had divine authority from God and His Word. And this is the foundation that is laid. See, God's Word that you are holding up is your foundation for building your identity. There's no other reliable, there's no other authoritative foundation for which to think about who you are and how you ought to live. And so practically in my life, if I'm seeking to grow into becoming more and more like Christ, I have to begin thinking more and more about God's Word and trusting based on what God's Word says is true, irrespective of what our culture says, irrespective of how I feel in the moment, that this is what God says if I believe and act on is what is being built to last. And so if you're going to have stability, how much is God's Word affecting how you think about yourself? This past week, how much did God's Word about who you are in Christ shape the way in which you acted and thought? That's what Faith Church was founded upon, that we are building upon our heritage of what, what Jesus tells us about His church. 
You know, at a recent church family, we took some time to, to honor several of our, our long-term church members who've been here for 20-plus years. And, uh, you know, there is several folks that stood up at that church family night. And when I thought about the, the, the blessing of what does it look like for a Christian to unite to Christ and then anchor their identity in Christ, as I looked out around all these dear saints, one of the, the ladies who was there was Pam Greasy. And many of you may know Pam Greasy, faithful member for over 30 years at our church. Pam, again, recently had lost her husband. And again, to see how she has responded amidst the trial. Uh, again, if your identity is tied into my marriage with my husband, that could shake you, right, when, when you lose your husband. And, and to see how she has been anchoring her identity in Christ and in God's word, and to see her encouraging others like Marsha Butler and my mother-in-law, who was also a widow, all meet together to encourage one another about the promises of what God's Word says. And then to see the fruit of that, the fruit of them being anchoring their identity in Christ, to see the ways that that helps them to love and serve so many in the church family, because their identity is not just tied to a, a human relationship on this earth, but to a relationship with their Savior. And so the more and more that you are anchoring your identity in Christ that's not changing, even the blessings of this life that we can tend to say, that's what defines who I am, God in time is going to reveal even those good things. He strips away for you to be anchoring on what are the best things for your stability. And so I want to encourage you this year especially, some of the guiding words we're thinking about are celebrating what God is doing in our church family to encourage you to celebrate, to encourage a sister, encourage a brother in Christ. When you see them going through a trial, when you see them facing a temptation, and then you see them go to God's word for how they think about who they are in that moment, and they are believing what God's word says, praise the Lord together encourage them. Send a note to thank them for ways that they're anchoring their identity in Christ rather than believing what is passing. See, there is an authoritative foundation on which to build your life. And that's what Paul is addressing the believers in Ephesus, reminding them he is an apostle given the authority by God, and he's giving them the word to say, this is who you are in Christ. And it's, we see that there's one people of God that is also being built. The second unchangeable part of God's plan is that there is one people of God that is being built. Each one of us are trying to find a place to build our identity, a community especially, in which we often think about this is what's significant. This community is what matters. The group that I sought to build my identity was often shifting in times. Sometimes it was academics. Sometimes it was people in athletics. Other times it was people who are wealthy or influential or who could help me get advancement in my life. And as you think about the groups that you gravitate to, what does it look like to, to make a name in that group? What has that group said, this is what is stable. This is what is most valuable. This is what you should be building your life toward. Our community often that we seek out is seeking to make a name for itself amidst that community. And as a Christian, I have to go, what does this community say is the best and lasting identity that you should be living for? And God is saying, the church, his people, is what you should desire. Those who are exalting and lifting and identifying with my son and my savior Jesus, that's what you want to be working toward. That's the community that you would want to be a part of. See, there are two descriptions of God's group and community that give us great insight. The first one is saints. 
uh, that, those who are, are faithful or, or believers. Uh, that word means set apart, referring to the church. And so that word saint. So anybody who is a believer in Christ is a saint, is set apart for God's purposes. In the church, the term saints can be translated holy ones. It does not refer primarily just to outward moral action, though. That can be one sense that that word means. But I think especially in this context, he's talking in the terms of holy ones, those set apart for God's special purposes. God's special, the church is set apart for God's chosen and special purposes. See, when Paul says those who are faithful in Christ, he's most likely referring to them, those who have believed in Christ. We're talking about believers. Paul would later say in Ephesians 5.27 that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so God will be making his people, his church, blameless and, and morally pure over time. And so often we think of saints just in that sense. But the holy ones, the set apart, also goes back to something very precious that is revealed throughout God's Word. In our identity struggles, we want to matter. We want to be significant. We want to be recognized. We want to be a big deal. We want to be a part of something that's significant. And the term holy one goes back to this, I think, desire that we have to be significant for God's purposes. Exodus 19.5 tells us this. This is when, again, the prophet Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So you're set apart. You're my holy ones for my purposes. You're a special possession that I have set apart to be used for my glory, to show my glory to the world. And so you see that term holy nation, that term special possession. It's an idea that we see actually comes up later on in Ephesians 1.11. God's own possession. See, the term special possession is kind of an understatement, meaning it's like the greatest treasure, a special treasure of a king. So think of like the crown jewels of the king. If you go to England and you look for the crown jewels, where are they? They're guarded under lock and key at the Tower of London. They have a special purpose. They're, they're very special to the king. They're not like everything else in the kingdom. And when the king wants to show his glory, what does he do? He grabs the special possession, right? puts it on his head, and he shows his splendor right, to the world to make and show his name, to show his reputation. The, the glorious possession shows something about the king and his value. And see, to think about the church, your brother, your sister in Christ sitting next to you is part of God's masterpiece, his chosen possession, his handiwork that's precious in his eyes because of what Jesus has done to save us by his grace. It adorns God's power. That that person next to you adorns God's wisdom. The person next to you adorns God's kindness. The fact that he would include you and that person together, if you're a Christian, in him, it brings great honor, glory, fame, reputation to the power of our God. And so to think that we are saved sinners 
that are fashioned to be God's chosen holy servants. What a precious possession that we're, we're kept safe by God's power forever under lock and key by his mighty hand that nobody snatches us from God's hand and the relationship that we have with him. See, if you want to be part of something permanent that will last, that's a, that's a big deal, a community that remains, God says you want to be part of his chosen people. And the only way through that is by faith, by His grace. See, how a part, being a part of God's community, the crown jewel, right, helps us to anchor our identity. There's significance, there's meaning in following the Lord. God wants me to understand my purpose. That I'm created for glorious purposes to praise His glorious name. And so any idea, identity that is not rooted in Christ will not remain. So your academic accomplishment you build will not last. Your financial portfolio you manage will not last. If your life is built on anything like entertainment online, video game playing, Fortnite, Minecraft, none of those things. None of those glories are what's going to be put on display for eternity. And instead, it's what God is doing in and through His people by His grace. And what's amazing is that we find a group in the most unlikely of places, in Ephesus, in worldwide mission is where this group is going to begin in a city that really was at first not for the glory of Christ's name, but over time is going to be transformed and changed. But that God is bringing His representatives, His chosen people to all kinds of places to have an impact for worldwide mission. Well, what are some examples even in our church family? By God's grace, as men and women have been faithful to prioritize what God prioritizes toward His church, to build up his church for the glory of his name, as men and women in our church family have followed the Lord and obeyed his word, how have they had significant influence? Well, think about, for example, our biblical counseling training conference, which started to help missionaries just be faithful to deal with problems in marriage from God's word, problems in parenting, that in time, over time, a, a larger biblical counseling movement would be coming to Lafayette, Indiana, of all places. Humanly speaking, by God working in and through you, our church family, to love and just be faithful to serve and show hospitality and to teach what God has taught us from His Word. And then to see now men and women coming from around the nations and the impact that God is having to build His church around the world in and through that, all by His grace. But men and women, God using as they're faithful to tra- seek to serve and build up His church to have worldwide influence. Think about, uh, again, our, our faith Christian school. We have some students who are coming here right now from other countries around the world that were in faith Christian school. And we think about the initial leaders. Were they planning, for example, to have students from China, Dominican Republic, when they started faith Christian school? I don't think so. Right? But as they were faithful to seek to just build up the body of Christ to serve those in our community and our church family, God has been faithful to have worldwide impact just through their faithfulness to serve the Lord. And again, you just think of all the, our, the teachers in our community and the world who are having worldwide impact. Or, or I think, uh, again, about those in our church family, like with our Faith Bible Seminary, to see the, the number of men and women who've b- received biblical counseling training who've received, become on to pastors and are now leading churches. And again, our church sought just to be faithful. You as church members sought to, to give generously, sacrifice in order to make that a reality. 
And again, as we as faithful Christians are prioritizing the opportunities to serve the local body of believers around us, God produces worldwide impact for His glory. Finally, there is not only just one authoritative foundation on which to build. There's not just one group that God is building. There's also one way to God. And that's through grace. See, the invitation goes worldwide to join the community, but there's only way and way in which to join. It's by God's kindness and you trusting in the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. See, there's only one way to God. Paul reminds us the source of where the kindness comes from, where the peace with God comes from. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no other way to find peace with God other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way to God, and it's through His Son, Jesus. And you must have faith in Him if you are going to be welcomed into the family. And that comes not by what you have done, not by the performance that you have made, not by the identity that you have built, but instead receiving the identity of the Son and what He has done. Who He is and what He has done is what is your hope of having peace with God that Christ Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And He rose from the grave to make you right with God. And by His kindness, you can be welcomed in. And that's only because Jesus identified, even though He is righteous, identified with sinners, going to the point of death on a cross so that we can be made righteous by faith in Him. See, the, while we were unpolished sinners, God loved us. While we were strangers and aliens and not part of His family, God loved us. And God the Father looks now on us in Christ for those who have faith, where He sees you as forgiven, loved, adopted. We're going to study all these great identity statements that provide stability to know my relationship with God is secure. Not because of my performance, not because of my identity, not because of what I have been building up, by what Christ has built once and for all. And that's what gives us especially hope as we head into 2024. I pray, especially as a church family this year, you're going to be especially anchoring your identity in Christ and to think that you are a saint, a chosen people, a, a holy possession for God's own purposes to show His glory of His kindness at work in your life. And the more and more you're tethered to that this year, the greater stability you're going to find in all kinds of challenges, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of trials that God is purposing in your life to help you make sure that you're building on the right foundation by faith in Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for one authoritative foundation that we have in Christ. We thank you that we can be included in a people of God that is being built by His grace and His kindness. Lord, I pray especially for those who today may not be part of God's community. They may not have peace with You, God. But as they hear today's message, they would say, I need Christ. I have seen the identity that I have been building is not lasting. Lord, I've been seeking to make a name for myself instead of trusting in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray today that You would help them to trust you, that you would give them faith to understand that you show them kindness, a kindness that will last, a kindness that makes it possible for them to be forgiven and welcomed into your family, and then giving a lasting name and a lasting identity and reputation that can't be taken away 
one that's laid by Jesus. Father, help us this year to especially be remembering your authoritative word when our feelings and the temptations of our life tell us something that is contrary to what your says. We pray what your word says. We pray that we would remember what is true and we would remember what we have in Christ, all the spiritual blessings that we need to, for the purposes that you save us for. Father, we pray too that I pray that we would, as we think about the preciousness of the church, it would be demonstrated by our love and earnestness to love and serve one another, that we would view one another as Jesus views one another, a treasured possession, a people for his own possession, a saint, a holy one. And as a result, we would live according to that. We pray this in Christ's name.